So we're carrying on with our story of Joseph, and uh, I, for one, really, really enjoying going through it and just being challenged very much by it. And we're in chapter 42 today, which we've seen from the readings. And so far, we've seen how God has chosen Joseph for this task of saving his family and the wider world, but that because he wasn't ready for that, God put him through this time of discipline. And through his suffering, he began to shape him for service. And so we saw that yesterday, particularly Joseph, began to understand God was in control in every area and that he could trust him fully. And it was just that challenge for us as Christians, particularly that when we're trying to do things for God, we don't forget to be with God, that we we have his presence as our priority. So we're going to switch focus a little bit this morning and focus a bit more on on Joseph's family. So let's pray before we do that. Father, we thank you for your word again, which is so challenging and encouraging at the same time. I pray that your Holy Spirit would open it up to us and speak to us through this story that we read this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're catching up now a bit with Joseph's family, Jacob and the 11 brothers. And the famine at the end of chapter 41, which we didn't really look at yesterday, has begun to bite. So we're now, we've had the seven years of plenty. So we're 20 years on from when Joseph left his family. And the famine is is taking hold in the surrounding countries as well. And so even Jacob and his, and his sons are affected by it to the point that at the beginning of 42, they've run out of food and Jacob when he learns that there's grain in Egypt, says kind of a funny statement. He says, why do you keep just looking at each other to his sons? I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. And so this sets up a whole series for today's reading and the two chapters tomorrow of Joseph's brothers encountering him and Joseph getting up to some interesting I'm not sure if it's payback or if it's just a series of tests to see if his brothers have really changed. And we're going to be looking particularly at one aspect of that this morning. So quick summary of the chapter. The 10 brothers head off. Um, There are 11 brothers, remember. But of course, Benjamin is far too precious to be sent because he's the, the last surviving son of Rachel. So the 10 brothers, the 10 who are um, complicit in getting Joseph into slavery, head down to Egypt. And as they come and ask for grain, they have to see the person in charge. And yes, they bow down before him, not recognizing him with their faces to the ground. And we have the first of Joseph's dreams being made reality, fulfilled in that moment. Now, of course, Joseph recognized them. And I I wonder what he felt. I wonder if he felt vindicated or angry, seeing the ones who'd caused him such distress sadness maybe. We're not quite sure what goes on in Joseph's mind, but he certainly doesn't let on who he is. He accuses them of spying and begins to ask probing questions, obviously because he's really desperate for news about his dad, about his younger brother Benjamin. And he begins to uh, kind of mess with their minds a little bit, it seems like, and ends up saying, well, I think you're spies. And he puts them in prison and says, I'm not going to let you go until that younger brother you've just told me about can come and verify your story. But after a few days, we read that he relented, releases them, but binds up Simeon again and says, right, if you're honest, 
then bring back that younger brother and you and Simeon can go free, but he's going to stay in prison until you come back with Benjamin. And maybe he picked on Simeon because we know that Simeon was the, the second oldest. And so while Reuben was away, Simeon would have been in charge. And that was at the point that Joseph ended up being thrown into the pit and sold on. So perhaps he, he was getting some of his just desserts. But in the end, Joseph sends the rest of the brothers home, returning their money without them knowing. And when they get back, they have to tell Jacob that, yes, they have food, but now Simeon is in prison and that he can't get out unless Benjamin comes back to Egypt with them. And that's kind of a, a summary of our story this morning. And it's, it's a fascinating story. So if you haven't had a chance, do read it later. So yesterday we saw how Joseph had been transformed by his time as a slave and in prison. He'd learned to trust God. It wasn't an overnight transformation. It was 13 years of that suffering. But jumping back very quickly to the chapter 41, we read that when he came out of prison, Joseph is recognized by Pharaoh, the ruler of the land, as someone in whom the spirit of God dwells. That's verse 38. And that there was no one so discerning and wise as him, verse 39. And that, in a sense, gives us a picture of what I think I'm sure all of us would love to be like. Mature in Christ, full of the spirit, free from pride, envy, bitterness. Someone who's dealt with the past by God's grace. We saw that yesterday with the name Manasseh. Someone who's fruitful where they are now, Ephraim. But this story is not just about Joseph. And I believe that as we begin to get into the next few chapters, we'll see that God is also interested in dealing with Joseph's brothers and his father. And I think he's using Joseph in that process. Now, whether Joseph is aware of that or not, I think perhaps he is, because you know, after all, we've just read he's someone in whom the spirit of God dwells. And so I think Joseph sets out deliberately to test them. And we get a picture of that in, in returning to the chapter 42, where we see in verses 15 and 16, in the middle of his conversation with them, finding out what's going on with his family, he says this, essentially once they've told him the story, he says, this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. Now he uses that word tested twice, and it's a word that's more often used of testing of metal and precious materials to see their worth and their value. So everything I think that unfolds in the next few chapters is Joseph testing and trying his brothers to see what has gone in, on in them. So let's just think about where they are for a minute. What about his brothers? Well, we can get a picture of what's going on in their lives just by listening to their dialogue. Verse 21, as they're talking in the presence of, Je of Joseph, of course, not realizing he can understand them, they say this to one another. Surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. 
I can only imagine Joseph's thoughts as he overheard that conversation. And then again, as they're on their way home, they've been released, apart from Simeon, of course. One of them opens his, mon- opens his food sack and finds his money returned. And again, verse 28, they, they talk to each other, says this, their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? To me, this gives a picture that the brothers are still trapped in the past. They failed to deal with their sin and it had hung over them like a cloud for more than 20 years. I'm sure it was the unspoken secret. They'd planned to kill Joseph. They'd sold him. They'd covered up their sin with a lie and they'd never come clean before Jacob. Or more importantly, they'd never confessed to God. And because I don't think they have any idea of God's grace, they've never had God's grace revealed to them, they can only speak in these terms. We're being punished. We're having to give an account for his blood. And even something that should be seen as a blessing, having their money returned, is taken as God doing something against them. Because they've been so trapped by this sin, it's now completely warping their perspective. But at least now, as this process begins, they're beginning to own up to it, even if it's just among themselves. And I think that's part of the whole point of the testing process. God, through Joseph, is beginning to stir them up, and he's going to challenge them, and some of them, I believe, will change because of it. And I think that first thought for us this morning really is that sin grips us until we confess it and deal with it. I'm sure we we all know well the amazing promise of 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that's that's an amazing promise based on Christ's finished work on the cross. We confess and God will forgive. But sometimes I think we take that as something that's just very private. We love to be private in our faith sometimes particularly when we're dealing with our own sin. I'm very happy to listen to another's sin, but I'm not so eager to confess my own. I'm very happy to confess my sin to God usually, because I know he knows anyway. And I can even get down on my knees beside my bed and pray Psalm 51 fervently as I contemplate my sin again, my failure. And yet, when you look at it, Psalm 51 was as public a confession as you can get. James 5.16 commands us this, confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. And I think there's something very powerful about these particular one another's. We can't do the praying for without the confessing to, at least not in any great detail. I've been watching, this is my confession, as when I was feeling a bit rough during this lockdown period, I started watching a series and it has a very famous detective who in the past was a drug addict. And he is a brilliant detective. He can solve these impossible crimes. Yet in order to stay stay sober and free from drugs, he has to go through the basic steps of an addict. He has to keep going to his daily meetings. He has to keep uh, talking to people and allowing them to encourage him. And he finds it very frustrating because he's such a genius. And yet he has to rely on these other mere mortals to keep him clean. And he finds that very frustrating. But I think that's a lesson for us as Christians. We very often fool ourselves that we can deal with sin by ourselves. 
just me and God will sort this one out. And it just doesn't work like that. I did uh, try a haircut under lockdown. Uh, uh, Jill lent us her, her buzzers. And uh, I did quite a good job until I tried to get fancy and change the level of the buzzer and did it on the back. And of course, I couldn't see what I was doing. So when I went running to Natasha, she said it looked like a donkey had bitten bits out of my hair at the back. Thankfully, we're on Zoom, so you can't see it anyway. And by the time we come out of lockdown, it should be all sorted. But we're a bit like that with sin. We want to deal with it by ourselves because we're ashamed. We need one another. Galatians 6, 1-2 reminds us, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should re restore that one, <clears throat> that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. And we can't really carry one another's burdens if we don't even know what they are. And that requires a level of vulnerability that sometimes we're not really comfortable with. So I think part of this process that's going on with the brothers is that God is using Joseph to help them confront their sin and be freed from that burden they've been carrying for 20 years. Now, how about Jacob? Let's look at Jacob's words to his sons. Verse, chapter 42, verse 36, when they come back and confess they've now lost Simeon to prison, Jacob says this, you've deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. And then even though Reuben gives this drastic promise that Jacob can kill his sons if he doesn't bring Benjamin back so they can go get more food, Jacob refuses, verse 38. My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. If we think about this for a moment, here is Jacob who had that amazing experience of seeing those angels ascending and descending at, at Bethel, the house of God. He had that transformative experience of wrestling with God so that God said, now your name's Israel. But he seems to have completely lost God's perspective and reverted to type, if you like. He's once more selfish Jacob rather than transformed Israel. Look at what he says. All, thing, all this has happened to me. Everything is against me. And he continues with this sin of favoritism that's had such a devastating effect in his own family. Look how he describes Benjamin. He is the only one left. I don't know if you're one of the, the 10 brothers and hearing that, you must think, well, thanks, Dad. I'm glad you care about me too. He's carrying on with that sin. In fact, Jacob's selfishness and favoritism is what has poisoned his family. And it delays the return to Egypt for the food they desperately need, where Simeon, remember, is still in prison. And I think that equally provides a challenge for us. We're often imprisoned by our own selfish perspective, and that affects those around us too. And if we have a selfish perspective and think life is about us, then because life is often unfair and unkind, or people are unfair and unkind, and we may not understand what God is doing, it's very easy to allow bitterness in. And that bitterness likes to dig down and go rooted underground and dig in deep. And through that, it poisons our outlook and our relationships, much as it has with Jacob here. 
Hebrews 12.5 tells us not to let a root of bitterness grow up. Why? Because it defiles many, not just the one who has it. And we have to let the Spirit of God dig in deep sometimes. In the words of Psalm 39, we need to allow him to search our hearts and dig out those roots. And that may require the help of brothers and sisters again, being vulnerable, opening up. And so I think we're, we're beginning a, fan, uh, a fascinating journey of not just the transformation of Joseph now, but of his whole family. But that comes uh, with a choice, really. And that choice faces us. Are we going to be trapped by sin and selfishness or transformed through tri Christ's grace and forgiveness through the help of a loving community? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word and convicts us time and time again. And Lord, we recognize that many times we have sins we don't deal with or bitterness that we've not yet confronted. And I pray that as we focus on you, you would, we would allow your spirit to search our hearts and that you would enable us to be vulnerable with one another, with those we can trust and just allow our brothers and sisters to help us and for us to help them. And so we pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.